All right, page 81 in those notes, and let me make a, a few announcements as quickly as I can, and then we'll get into our final session of what's the difference. Next Sunday, for those who are new to our church and are taking a look at our church as to whether or not this would be the place that God would have you uh, to join and, and serve the Lord and grow, uh, we offer our periodic newcomers orientation beginning next Sunday during this hour for four Sundays in a row. So if you fit into that category, I encourage you to attend the newcomers orientation. I'll be leading that in another room uh, out this back door and across the hallway for those uh, four weeks. We give you a booklet of material that tells you about our church, its origin, its beliefs, our philosophy, what we hope to achieve going forward. Uh, we try to give you enough information for you to make an informed decision about whether or not this would be the place that God would have for you. And we, uh, as we announce that, we always say there is no obligation to you to join the church in taking the orientation. It is for information only, and we mean that. So when we're done with it, we don't come after you and uh, uh, hound you to uh, make a decision or to join the church. But uh, you should avail yourself of that information if you're new to the church. So that'll be next week and for the three weeks following, four weeks total. Simultaneous with that, those of you that have recently joined the church uh, will have a new members class that will help you get a deeper dive into how to get connected into ministry and with people in our church. And so for four weeks in another room, that'll be going on. And those of you that are not in either, you're not in the newcomer's orientation or the new members class, then you guys will be in here, and we're going to have four of our men, uh, a different guy each week is going to be leading this class, and then uh, we will start on, uh, on February the 8th with a new series in here. So those of you that are not in newcomers and uh, new members, you'll enjoy the teaching of, of some of the men in our church over the next four weeks. I also wanted to underscore again the Holy Land tour deadlines. If anybody has been thinking about that, you're, you might be interested in it. We've got to know that uh, today or next Sunday. Let Sue Biggs know about that. She's going to be in the Resource Center uh, after today and also next Sunday to answer any questions and to hopefully take some deposits uh, from some of you, the $300 deposit that needs to be in uh, in order to get you on the list. And then I got this message about the Lions game this afternoon. <clears throat> the Lions are playing at 4.30 today in a uh, playoff game, which is almost unheard of in Detroit for us to be in a playoff game. Uh, to win a playoff game is unheard of since 1991, I think. And then that particular win in 1991 is the only one since like the 50s. So, okay, one win in, you know, 50, 60 some years. So it's a big deal for us to be in the playoffs and then to um, perhaps win. But that's today at 4.30, and some of the guys are going to gather here in this room to watch the Lions game because we've got big screen TV here. So I think it's completely illegal for us to, uh, to be showing it here without a license. But nevertheless, it's just between us. Actually, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's illegal. What's that? Only if you charge. Is that right? Okay. All right, we're good. We're on the up and up here then. And uh, we're going to have some snacks, uh, some snacks here as well. So any of you guys that uh, want to come over, uh, 4.30 for the uh, Lions game, that'll be happening in, in here. All right, page 81 in our last session in the What's the Difference series. We covered, uh, started to cover world religions at the beginning of this series going back in September and uh, then transitioned to denominations. 
And the only world religion we covered and spent a number of weeks on was Islam. I have some notes in your notebooks about uh, some other world religions, Hinduism and Buddhism and Judaism. But uh, we did not cover those, and we're not going to be able to cover those, obviously, today. So I hope that doesn't break anybody's heart too much, but we are going to finish with the denominations beginning on page 81 today. And you see up at the top of page 81, we've seen that the issues of polity, that is government, liturgy, worship, and salvation are major sources of denominational differences. So I would encourage you, in fact, uh, I give you a checklist at the end of these notes to help find a church. Uh, now, you're at this church, or you're at least attending this church for, for this session. So <clears throat> one way for me to put looking for a church is look no further. You've, you've, you've found the right church here. But if, if you move, or if you decide this is not the church for you, or you have someone that you're trying to recommend, how do you go about looking for a church? We have a, a checklist of things at the end of this uh, material, and even a website for you to go to to get more information about uh, how to discern finding a good church. But those three items at the top of page 81 are, are certainly a major part of differentiating where denominations are coming from, how they're governed, uh, how they view the ordinances uh, or the sacraments, depending on what they call them, and then how they view the issue of the gospel, salvation, and whether or not salvation is an eternal gift or something that can, can be lost. And we've looked at all three of those, and that gives you a great start on evaluating a church in those categories. With regard to liturgy, top of page 81, we've noted the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. Sacrament often being seen as conferring grace, an ordinance, a command to be obeyed. One of the dangers of a sacramental approach is ritualism, just going through the motions. We've seen that John Wesley agitated for reform in the Church of England in part desiring to encourage, quote, individual devotion and piety in contrast to what he saw as the dead formalism of the Church of England. And we now survey the development of several denominations which originated due to a desire to emphasize an individual experience with God. And then we'll see the further splintering of Protestant groups due to the rise of liberalism. So revival and how revival uh, resulted in fragmentation of groups and then uh, some of the groups that developed out of that fragmentation. There was first the frontier revival. In the 18th century, frontier preachers began to hold camp meetings to promote revival. The most famous camp meeting was the one held at Cane Ridge, Kentucky in August of 1801. Some estimates suggest 10,000 people attended. It was marked by strange physical phenomena such as falling, jerking, rolling, dancing, and barking. That is a historical fact. That was a, a revival that took place in that place and at that time and had those manifestations to it. Now, what, what do you say about a, a revival that has, has that kind of stuff? Uh, my, my view is that during that revival and during like uh, most revivals, that there are people who are genuinely saved, there are people who genuinely come to Christ, who genuinely get right with, with God, and then there are all kinds of other weird things that happen. And people who take advantage of the fact that now crowds of people are coming and they try to womp it up, uh, you've seen that in modern-day revivals. 
the uh, Brownsville uh, revival. Uh, you could Google that, Brownsville, uh, down in Florida. And that went on for months and months. And it had uh, these kinds of manifestations. And you had uh, Rodney Howard Brown was the name of the evangelist who led that. And as you read about him and all of his uh, escapades, he took advantage of that for his own ends. And a lot of ungodly things came, came out of it. So you'll read these strange and, frankly, not of God kinds of things that will happen in revivals. That doesn't mean that there were no good things that came out of that, that there weren't people who got saved and people who got right with God. And so that's the way I suggest that you discern. That's the way you evaluate it. And that's the, what we have to do with, with most things. But that was the, the Cane Ridge uh, revival. And one of the results, second paragraph, was division within the churches. Division came among the Presbyterians when the Cumberland Presbytery ordained men without the required educational qualifications to minister to the increasing number of churches on the frontier. So now you've got this large number of people coming in rapidly that need to be ministered to, and some people took it upon themselves to say, we're going to send men to actually uh, lead, these, lead these people. The, the denomination took exception to that, and that resulted in the formation of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in the year 1810. For a long time, there was a Cumberland Presbyterian Church uh, in our area. I don't think it's there anymore. It's gone through a number of changes, but there was one on Fort uh, Street in uh, Lincoln Park for years near, uh, near Buckingham, and it was called Cumberland Presbyterian Church. It was part of the Cumberland Presbyterian uh, denomination, and I was by there a couple of weeks ago um, because at Christmas time I find myself on Fort Street, and the reason is because in that very area is Fantasyland, and and I don't go into Fantasyland, and my girls don't want to go to Fantasyland anymore, but I just get a warm feeling just driving by Fantasyland <laughs> because I used to go there every year when I was a I was a kid. Does anybody know where the fantasy land is I'm, I'm talking about? That is a cool place for a little kid. That's actually a cool place for me, but I don't have any little kid to take. But anyway, as I went by there, I looked at that church. It was some other name, but that used to be a Cumberland Presbyterian church. A number, another division was made by Thomas Campbell, a Scottish Presbyterian who came to America in 1807. When his church refused to permit him to administer communion to those outside his own group, he decided to preach a non-credal faith based on the Bible. He soon gained numerous followers among the Baptists, and after his son Alexander came to America, he organized congregational churches that practiced baptism by immersion. By 1830, these churches separated from the Baptists and were known as the Disciples. In 1832, the Disciples united with the Christians who followed Barton Stone, and so the Disciples, or Christian Church, that is, Church of Christ, was formed. Now, that's important for you to know because notice in 1832 the Church of Christ was formed. But if you talk to someone from a Christian church or a Church of Christ and you say, when were you formed, you know what the answer will be. Uh, it began with the first apostles because we are the original church. So uh, I said several weeks ago in here to the shock of some of you that uh, the folks across the street from us at South Point Community Christian Church are part of this, and that one of the distinctives of that denomination is 
They believe you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. Uh, So notice, many of them split off when it started from Baptists. So the the issue was not baptism by immersion. The Baptists obviously already believed in that. But the issue was about the priority of baptism. And uh, the, Alexand- the Campbells, excuse me, uh, taught that baptism is necessary for salvation. And the churches of Christ and the Christian churches, sometimes they're called Church of Christ, sometimes Christian church, believe that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. And that is part of the Church of Christ. It started in 1832. It does not go back to the apostles. It started with the Campbell brothers. It is sometimes called Campbellite doctrine uh, because of the founders, the the Campbells. Now, lest you think I make any of this up, uh, one, I have it all footnoted for you, but two, um, if you were to go to a website called Christian Church Today, ChristianChurchToday.com, ChristianChurchToday.com, and on ChristianChurchToday.com, it gives you Uh, a description of where the Christian churches came from. And in that description, it will mention these very fellows that I'm telling you about, the camels. And then you can do a church locator. Well, where can I find a church like this that originated with the camels? Where can I find it? And so they got a church locator. And you can find churches in our area, including the aforementioned, on that church locator function. So, lest you think I make up that association with Campbellism and Campbellite doctrine and baptismal regeneration, baptism is necessary for salvation, you can look that, up on, look that up on your own. So, frontier revival resulted in the, some of the churches that you see today. That includes the Christian churches, uh, the churches of, of Christ. But then there was the holiness revival, bottom of page 81. The Nazarene denomination began in Los Angeles in 1895. By 1908, many other churches who were dissatisfied with the Methodist denomination united finally under the name Church of the Nazarene. They emphasize a second work of grace for sanctification, as do most in the tradition of John Wesley. Now, some of those in the tradition of John Wesley include the top of page 82. Pentecostals. Pentecostals are a Wesleyan group that emphasize the need for personal holiness. So Pentecostalism is part of what's called then the holiness movement, desire for personal piety, a personal walk with God, all a very good, well-motivated thing. And the Pentecostals, as we know them today, come out of that holiness movement. I grew up Pentecostal, many of you know, and our church was... called Pentecostal Holiness Church. That was the name of the the church. And there was an emphasis upon uh, individual personal holiness, and that holiness was defined largely in terms of things we did and things we didn't do. Uh, The women in church did not wear pants. Um, For the longest time, uh, makeup was not allowed. Uh, Just very plain Uh, appearance was what was uh, encouraged, and this was all part of the kind of holiness code that uh, at least our Pentecostal church had. Now, almost all of them have changed that over time, but in the beginning, most of them were uh, of that sort. But the emphasis was on uh, the desire for holiness. 
came out of the Wesleyan movement, and this is what they have in common with all of those who came out of the Wesleyan uh, movement, the second work of grace, the second work of grace. In fact, top of page 82, they emphasize speaking in tongues as a second work of grace and evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They drew their membership primarily from Wesleyan holiness churches. So just like on the prior page, the Church of the Nazarene has the second work of grace, so too does uh, do our Pentecostal friends. Now what is that second work of grace? What is that about? We've got a ton of people in evangelicalism who believe that you get saved, but then salvation is not enough, that there's something that has to happen after that. And in the church I grew up in, you don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit when you first get saved, but rather there's a subsequent experience. They called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that was evidenced by speaking in tongues. And when you spoke in tongues, that was the evidence you actually had the fullness now of of the Spirit. Now, it's a second work of grace. But other groups have a different uh, manifestation of it, but it's still a second work of grace. Some evangelical groups who believe in the gospel and the fact that you must trust Christ for salvation still believe there have to be this second thing. For them, the second thing is an act of dedication to the Lord. So someone will get saved, they receive Jesus as Savior, but then sometime later, they may or may not have this second experience where Jesus becomes their Lord. They have an act of dedication to the Lord. And there are a lot of groups who believe that. They're not speaking in tongues groups, but they have their own kind of version of the second work of grace. Uh, You're saved, but you're not a full follower of the Lord, say they, until you have this experience. Now, who teaches that? Uh, Much of that type of second work of grace, crisis, encounter, uh, act of dedication, second work of grace, comes out of Dallas Seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. Uh, The founder of Dallas Seminary, Louis Sperry, some pronounce his last name, Schaefer, Schaefer, C-H-A-F-E-R, uh, he was an associate of he was an associate of C. I. Schofield of the Schofield Reference Bible. Some of you are familiar with that, and uh, he believed in this second work of grace, this act of dedication that one must have uh, after after salvation. Now the person's fully saved, but they have this uh, act of salvation. Now that's carried on through many through Dallas for a lot of years. In fact, so much so that, and and really good people, good teachers, but they've emphasized this for a lot of years. Charles Ryrie, any of you familiar with Charles Ryrie and the Ryrie Study Bible that I've recommended for years? It's an excellent study Bible, and he's got a lot of excellent uh, books that I benefited from. But I have a book on my shelf from Charles Ryrie called Balancing the Christian Life. That's the name of the book, Balancing the Christian Life. In the back of that book, Charles Ryrie diagrams what the Christian uh, life is about. And his diagram shows a time of salvation, but then at a later point, there's an act of dedication to the Lord, and then you begin to really grow. So you've got a person in that scheme who is saved, but they're not really growing. 
until they have this subsequent thing that happens, this act of dedication, and then they begin to grow. So what about during that time that, you know, they're flatlining? Is this person really saved during that time? And in fact, this act of dedication in that scheme and that approach towards sanctification is actually optional. It doesn't happen for everybody. So you've got a lot of people who they got saved, but they just have this kind of flat walk with the Lord. They're not growing. They never come to this act of dedication. Some do, and that's what's desired, and that's what everybody should do, but not everybody does that. So what about these people who never, who never grow? That is where the term easy believism came from. Have you ever heard that term, easy believism? That you, you believe, you're now saved, but there may not be any change of life. That change of life will come if, not necessarily so, but if there is this subsequent second work act of, act of dedication. And I reject, I reject that whole two-step. That in my understanding of, of Scripture, when someone comes to Christ, they don't receive Christ as Savior and then later as Lord. He is the Lord. And when you come to Him, you receive the salvation that He gives as Savior, and you bow before Him as your Lord, and you begin to follow Him, and you begin to grow in Him, and you begin to walk with Him. Now, unevenly, sometimes, you know, two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward and two steps back, and and all of that, but that's the pattern of, of the Christian life. Top of page 82 again, then. Many consider, uh, with regard to the origin of the Pentecostals, a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas, says the beginning of that movement. In 1901, students were studying the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts, and one student, Agnes Osman, asked others to lay hands on her so that she would receive the Holy Spirit. She spoke in tongues, and later other students also spoke in tongues. Another school was opened in Los Angeles in 1905 by the founder of the Topeka College, Charles Parham. One of the students became leader of the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles in 1906. Speaking in tongues became common in the mission. People who came to visit had similar experiences and carried the message to other places. The present Assemblies of God was founded in 1914 in in Arkansas. So that's where all of that came. Now, if you're curious about speaking in tongues and what the Bible teaches about speaking in tongues and all that, I can't get into that, unfortunately, in this hour. However... I do spend a decent amount of time on that in both our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible class that we do as part of Community Institute and also our Master Plan for Life class uh, that's part of Community Institute as well. And if you have any questions about that, I have a lot of experience with that because, as I say, I grew up uh, Pentecostal, so I'd be happy to try to answer any questions that you have. All right, so there's revival that resulted in these various groups that developed a little over a hundred years ago. But then there was further fragmentation, other groups that developed, not because of revival, uh, that kind of revival, but because of a revival of, of truth, truth and fragmentation on page 82. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, first, there were these Bible conferences that developed in the 1800s and early 1900s. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, conferences were held in various parts of the country to teach the Bible with special emphasis on prophecy and on sanctification. Famous conferences included the Niagara Bible Conference and the Winona Lake uh, Bible Conference in Winona Lake, Indiana. 
Some of the participants in these conferences were leading lights opposing the teaching of evolution and liberalism in general within the denominations. So uh, what began to happen was this. In the denominations that had now formed, uh, in the Presbyterian uh, denomination, for example, uh, their flagship uh, seminary in New York, Union Theological Seminary, began to teach uh, some false uh, doctrines. They began to teach uh, evolution uh, rather than what the Bible teaches about creation, one. They also began to teach something called higher criticism of the Bible, higher criticism. And the idea was, uh, in a nutshell, the Bible is not inerrant. To put it positively, the Bible has errors in it they said. And that came from this analysis of the Bible through what's called German higher criticism. Union Theological Seminary adopted that. It's a flagship uh, seminary of the, uh, of the denomination. And likewise, Princeton uh, Theological Seminary that started as a seminary to train evangelical preachers of the gospel was now teaching some of these same errors. And as a result of that, Bible believers became very troubled by what was being taught at the denominational level at the denominational schools. And so they began to have their own conferences in order to teach biblical truth. So that started, that fragmentation started through these uh, conferences that became wildly popular over a number of years. But then it was formalized, and that's what uh, B on page 82 is about, fundamentalism. Between 1910 and 1915, a series of articles was published called The Fundamentals. So we are just uh, this coming year, uh, the final year of the publication of those pamphlets over that six-year period, uh, the 100-year anniversary of, of that, the publication of what are called The Fundamentals. And out of the publication of these uh, statements of doctrinal truth called The Fundamentals, came a term, fundamentalist. So those that adhered to those truths that were laid out in those pamphlets over that period of time came to be known as fundamentalists. So that's about 100, 100 years old. Now, why were they doing that? These articles detailed scriptural teaching on cardinal doctrines such as the authority of Scripture, blood atonement of Christ, His literal return, and so on. And those who subscribed were known as fundamentalists. Fundamentalists went to war with liberals over control of the denominations. The fundamentalists eventually concluded that the mainline denominations were a lost cause and in the 1930s and 1940s began to leave to found their own institutions. Westminster Theological Seminary, BIOLA, which stands for Bible Institute of Los Angeles, is what it started out as. It's now BIOLA University. The General Association of Regular Baptist Churches and many other institutions began as a result of this battle. So this is about 100 years ago. You've got this liberalism going on in the denominations, and you've got people who said, we don't believe that. They tried to change the seminaries. They tried to change the denominations. They determined they could not, and so they left. Westminster Seminary, where I... Uh, am still pursuing a doctor of ministry degree. I have to finish a paper to, to finish. It's in Philadelphia. But Westminster uh, 
Theological Seminary was started by five guys who left Princeton to start Westminster. They were all faculty at Princeton, and they left Princeton to start Westminster for the very reasons outlined here. They left the denominations, left in in, uh, most of their cases, left their retirements behind. Uh, Many of them had to give up their libraries because the denomination, the school owned them. So these guys sacrificed greatly in order to leave and then found these, these other institutions. So in that sense, I am very, very proud to be called a fundamentalist. And in that sense, you ought to be as well. Because fundamentalism in that sense is a very good thing. Because it, is, it signifies someone who believes in the fundamental truths mm-hmm. of Christianity. Now, there are a lot of people out there who call them, just like a lot of people out there that call themselves Baptists, call themselves fundamentalists, who are crazy. And that's why I say, in that sense, I like to be called a fundamentalist. Over the years, what has happened, and I've lived now long enough, when I was a teenager and a young adult, I saw some of these fundamentalist churches, and they've added to the fundamentals some of these holiness code kinds of things. So there are churches where you're not considered a fundamentalist church if women are allowed to wear pants, for example. Or if you use an English version of the Bible other than the King James version of the Bible. So there has been that kind of fragmenting that has happened since this time. But the original idea of what a fundamentalist is, uh, is a, a very good one, and it comes out of a very noble heritage. Bottom of page 82, Cursop Lake was a participant in these battles, and he was a liberal. His commentary on fundamentalism, though, is enlightening. Page 83, he says this, It's a mistake often made by educated persons who happen to have little knowledge of historical theology to suppose that fundamentalism is a new and strange form of thought. It is nothing of the kind. It is the survival of a theology that was once universally held by all Christians. The fundamentalist may be wrong, I think he is, but it is we who've departed from the tradition, not he. And I'm sorry for the fate of anyone who tries to argue with a fundamentalist on the base of authority. The Bible and the corpus theologicum, that is the body of doctrine of the church, is on the fundamentalist side. Well, amen to that. And uh, so, in that sense, it's a good thing to be called a fundamentalist. Now with that, I want to wrap up some questions related to, that may have come up in your mind, related to this survey of, of denominations then. And so I've got some of those on the next couple of pages. Last week we looked at Arminianism, and the name comes from a theologian, uh, James Arminius, and Arminius taught that salvation could be, could be received, but then it could later be, be lost. That uh, eternal security, Arminians say, is not taught in, in the Bible. So Arminians are, uh, are free will people. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, so sometimes you'll see uh, churches. There are free will Baptist churches. Free will Baptist churches are Arminian, that is, Uh, they don't believe in eternal security. They believe that salvation can be lost. Why? 
because salvation is obtained by freely receiving it, free will, and salvation can be given back by an act of, of the will, it can, or it can be forfeited by an act of the will. And so if you believe that free will means that at all times you have to have the ability to make any choice at any given time, well then Arminianism would be correct. But free will, according to the Bible, does not believe that or does not teach that. The Bible does teach free will if properly understood. But free will, according to the Bible, is this. You have a will that is free to choose within your nature. You have a will that is free to choose within your nature. You are not free to choose outside of your nature. As a matter of fact, it's impossible to do so. So, now let's go to the beginning of salvation. What is your nature before you become a child of God, according to the Bible? Your nature is sin nature, right? And the Bible teaches you, are, you make all kinds of free choices, but you make those free choices within that sin nature. Which means, if I have a sin nature and all my choices are made within my sin nature then how will I ever make a choice for Jesus? And the answer is you never will until He changes you from the inside out. Until He changes your nature. And when the Holy Spirit of God moves upon an individual and changes their heart, that is when they then can choose Jesus. So people are not able to choose Jesus naturally. The Bible teaches not only are people totally depraved, that total depravity renders them totally unable to choose Christ because in their nature they are sinful. So the Bible teaches free will, but it means you're free to make choices within your nature. But the good news is God changes the nature of those who are saved. And then we are enabled, we have a new nature, and now we can choose. And now with this new nature, I make new choices. And one of those new choices will never be, for one who is a child of God, according to Scripture, will never be to reject Christ. Never. And if I reject Christ, and if one rejects Christ, it is evidence that they never knew Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. And then there will be a day in heaven where you will have yet another nature. I mean, you know, I've got the nature that I can only sin, then I get saved, and my nature is I can sin and I cannot sin. But thanks be to God, there's coming a day when the only thing I can do is righteousness. And I'll still have a free will. That is, I'll still make lots of choices, but I'll make those choices within this new nature that I have. So we always make our choices within the ability of the nature that we have. So that being the case, why is Arminianism so popular? Because the truth is most people are Arminians. And most denominations are Arminian. Why? I say on page 84, the idea that one must do something to gain or maintain his salvation seems natural. Grace is quite foreign to our natural way of thinking. Indeed, grace is supernatural. 
As a result, most use human reason to conclude that eternal life is something you must in some way earn. For instance, it's often reasoned that since eternal life is said to be a gift, then like a gift, it can be returned at the will of the receiver. However, this fails to take into account the unique nature of the gift of eternal life. Eternal gifts can't be returned. See, eternal gifts don't come with a receipt. When, when God, when God get, gives you eternal life, He doesn't say, you want a gift receipt with that in case you don't like it? All right. Why so many interpretations? Many who have never taken a course on biblical hermeneutics, that is, the science of interpretation, conclude based on the plethora of interpretations that exist, the Bible to be a hopelessly obscure book. However, the reason there are so many interpretations is not that the Bible can mean different things to different people, but rather because we don't all play by the same rules. For instance, a rule of interpretation necessary for any communication is this. A text can have only one meaning. And I teach a course on that, in a section on that in both how to get the most out of your Bible and in master plan for life as, as well. And then the nature of the church is another reason uh, that there is conflict within denominations and has been that kind of fragmentation. And I'll let you read that on your own, but the gist of it is, is this. Is the church primarily an institution or is the church uh, comprised of regenerated, saved, called out of the world people that belong to God? And the Bible's answer is the church is comprised of God's people. And it is not primarily and first an institution. If it is first an institution, then you will look to a particular institution to be the one true church. And that's the mistake that Roman Catholicism makes and others make, and we have that outlined for you in the quotes that follow. So, last page. How can I evaluate a church? This course has attempted to offer a grid through which to evaluate churches, their origin and beliefs. Here's a preliminary checklist. If you're looking for a church, the very first thing you want to look at is the authority of Scripture. And when I say the authority of Scripture, I don't mean just the doctrinal statement and whether or not there is a plank in the doctrinal statement that says we believe that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Almost verbatim what I just said you will find in just about every church denominational statement. So when I say authority of Scripture, I don't mean just look to see if they have a plank that says that. I mean, you want to see that. But here's the other thing. is You want to know not only does it have nominal authority but does it have practical authority? That is, is the Bible the authority, not only in name, nominally, but in practice as, as well? Is everything that the church does bound by the authority of Scripture? And one way to, to ask that is to ask, how do you determine what it is you do when the church gathers for worship? And does that need to be regulated by the Bible and prescribed by the Bible? You see, many of our churches are doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, you go into a church today and you look at the stuff they do and you go, I wonder what Paul would think of that. Was that going on in the New Testament? Were they doing drama in the New Testament as regular part of worship? 
Was entertainment a regular part of worship in the New Testament? So when I say the authority of Scripture, I mean not just in name, but in, in practice. Then another important issue, hugely important issue, is the issue of salvation by faith alone. And that includes whether or not salvation can be lost. Because if salvation can be lost, then salvation is not by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone and then you maintaining that salvation. The fundamentals. What does the church believe about the blood of Christ uh, and the atonement that it provided? That Christ is fully God and fully man in one person. Worship, how are the ordinances and sacraments viewed? And then how is the church organized and run? And you could refer to the pages that we've given you on the different kinds of government. If a church is correct on these issues, you've generally identified an evangelical church, that is, one that believes and preaches the gospel. However, in addition to doctrinal issues, there are philosophy of ministry issues that have not been covered in this class. For instance, in wor is worship primarily a time of entertainment as in many churches today? A helpful article on this topic, What Should I Look For When Choosing a New Church Home?, can be found at Grace to You, the Grace to You website, and you see the long uh, URL for that. All right, and uh, if you have any follow-up questions then, let me give you my email address, and then uh, once I've given you my email address, we can conclude by praying. My email address is kb, my initials, Ken Brown, kb at cbctrenton.com, kb at cbctrenton.com, kb at cbctrenton.com. So if you have any follow-up questions about any of what I've laid out, I'd be happy to try to answer those. That concludes our series. Next week, um, Brother Ron Biggs is going to be teaching in, th in this class. And then uh, the week after that, Ken McGill is going to teach. The week after that, Zach Hamilton. And then the week after that, we have a fourth brother who is uh, just about confirmed. Uh, but we'll have four of our guys teaching you in here and I'll be doing the newcomer's orientation. All right, let's bow together. Father, we thank you that over these weeks we've been able to spend this time together to look at your providential work in allowing your people to gather as your church and to do so around the truth of your word and around the beauty of the, the gospel. Lord, we thank you that your church is not first uh, an institution, it is not first an organization, but rather an organism made up of your people who have been called out by your spirit to yourself. And so a living, breathing group of people that reside in numerous denominations and reside throughout your world. And Lord, we look forward to a time when you will bring all of your people together and there will be that glad reunion with you in heaven. In the meantime, Lord, we want to serve you in a way that honors you. Uh, that is consistent with what you have taught us in your word. And so help us, Lord, to be people of your book. Help us to read it, to study it, to understand it, and then to live it. And we pray, Lord, your blessing upon us, in particular here, as we try to carry out your work in this part of your world. We ask you to help us to be faithful, help us to articulate your truth as clearly as we can, help us to live it as faithfully as, as we can, and as a result of, the, of that, help us to be a light in, uh, in darkness. We pray that you would allow us to reach many for you and to cause many to grow in you. Go with us this week, Lord, as we seek to serve you. 
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.